listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast, a podcast all about your health and wellness issues that affect you every day. We want to educate, entertain, and maybe make you giggle a little along the way. No annoying statistics or jargon here, just information you can use every day to be healthier, happier, and less boring. All right, here's your host, OBGYN Dr. Ron Eaker. Hey everybody, Dr. Ron Eaker here. Welcome to another edition of Thirsty Thursday, the Women's Online Wellness Community Forum, where we try to spread joy and happiness and maybe even answer a few questions and impart uh, maybe a little bit of knowledge that'll help you in your journey to wellness, your journey for women's wellness. That's what this is all about. And it's a joy to be with you. I'm here doing my best impersonation of Mr. Rogers. Got my Mr. Rogers sweater on, trying to look all Mr. Rogers-y. You know, he's becoming actually a new thing. I, I know some of you out there are too young to remember Mr. Rogers. I mean, some of you out there are so young, I've got underwear older than you are. But Mr. Rogers really was a big thing back when I was growing up. And it's really kind of taken off with this new movie. I haven't seen the new movie yet. If you've seen the new movie and it's worth seeing, uh, let me know in the messages there if it's something that's worth going to see. I think I should just because it's a cultural thing that I grew up with. You know, I remember Mr. Rogers is, and I was kind of old enough where I, I kind of thought it was a little bit uncool. You know, Sesame Street was kind of cool because they had the puppets that, that they're mouths moved and their eyes moved and their arms moved and they did crazy things like play the drums and stuff but on mr rogers the puppets didn't they were like dollar store puppets i mean they just maybe that was part of the charm of it but it just didn't really register with me i didn't really get the same effect that i did from sesame street boy is this aging is this dating me anybody else remember these actually remember when they were on when they first started and it was, uh, yeah, I just still got freaked out when he'd take that train and turn around and end up in this place that the magic, I mean, it was, it was low budget. Let me tell you, for those who don't remember, comparing Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers was pretty low budget. It was not exactly massive sets, but obviously it had an impact. Obviously it made a difference, and I know... He apparently is an amazing person. I really didn't know much about him, but I think I ought to see the movie. It might be worth going to see. So if you've seen it, let me know, uh, and we'll uh, uh, get my bride one night for a date night, and we'll go see the Mr. Rogers movie. I don't even know if it's still on. It may not still be on. But anyway, I digress. Imagine that. Any of those of you who've seen these videos before would be hard-pressed to know that I actually digress every now and then. But anyway, it's uh, great to see you here tonight. You might realize, if you are a regular watcher or you see this fairly often, that I wasn't here last Thursday. And I was AWL, absent with, without, or AWF, absent without Facebook. But my wife and I were in Bermuda. I know you really feel sorry for me. I'm sorry, but somebody has to do it well we went there for a race of course my wife tells me all the time and she's absolutely right that we hardly go anywhere now unless there's a race that just seems to be what drives our vacations unless it's kids that's the other thing that drives our vacations either we're going to see kids or doing something with the kids who are now spread out all over many of you know i got one in lynchburg and one in salt lake city 
So we have fun traveling to see them, but the rest of our travels are basically where is the next race? Well, a few years ago, my wife decided that she was going to pick the races we go to, and I thought that was the least I could do because I had dragged her off to places like Chickamauga and Albany, uh, Georgia for races. And I mean, they're nice places, but you know, not exactly where you want to go and spend a long weekend, especially if you're not running. Uh, so she found uh, this race in Bermuda, which is was wonderful, but I was shocked at the temperature there. I was amazed. I didn't really realize, this shows how bad I am in geography, Bermuda and Augusta are about on the same latitude. So it's not exactly Caribbean summertime there. It was pretty cool. We got there Thursday and Friday. It was in the 50s. But what was really difficult was the wind. Oh, good gosh, it was like a hurricane. It was a gale force winds of 40 and 50 miles an hour. And that really is a chill factor. Well, Friday night, we had a mile race. It was really kind of part of the celebration that Bermuda puts on every year, which was really a lot of fun, where they get all these kids to qualify to run the mile, which is so rewarding. They have really done a magnificent job of getting kids engaged in physical activity. Here in the U.S., we're getting rid of physical education. We're eliminating from the schools. But in Bermuda, they are a lot smarter in many ways. They've really embraced it and incorporated it into their schools and made this wonderful, fun competition where these kids can qualify and then get to go run this mile that's on the front street right there next to the bay, right there in the middle of Hamilton in the beautiful town of Hamilton and Bermuda, and there were hundreds of these kids that were running all these these races, and it was a blast to be able to be a part of that and see these kids and the excitement that they were garnishing from the crowd. I mean, there were people there, and it was it was a beautiful evening, even though it was cold and the wind was blowing. But we ran a mile that night, and then were able to watch the kids. And then the next day, Susan and I did a 10k. That was part of what we call this Bermuda Triangle Challenge. These guys have gotten brilliant in their marketing. They have these uh, events where you can go and participate in these off-seasons that really bring a lot of people in that otherwise wouldn't be there. But luckily, the wind had died down, so we weren't being pushed backwards as we were running against the wind. But had a glorious time running with Susan and looking at the beautiful vistas in the, the Bermuda where the race was uh, for uh, this 10K. And then Sunday did a marathon. And it was really, really fun getting on a ferry boat, going to the start. You know, most marathons, especially the bigger ones like New York, you get on a school bus in Manhattan and you sit there for two and a half hours driving for maybe two miles to get to the start. And you're there a couple hours before the start. I mean, New York is great. It's a bucket list race that anyone who ever runs ought to run there at least once. But this is wonderful. You hop on a ferry, takes 20 minutes to get to the start. There were only 200 or so of us that ran the marathon. So I love the small races because you can really get in your head and not be distracted by, by crowds and being, I mean, sometimes it's fun because it does distract you. But this is really well done, well organized, and absolutely amazing views, incredible views. A little hilly. Uh, for those of you who've ever been to Bermuda, you know what I'm talking about. It's a little up and down, a little hilly, but it was worth it because every time you'd get to the top of the hill, you'd have this amazing panoramic view that was just well worth the run. So it was, it was a wonderful weekend. We had a great time. 
I was thinking about doing a Facebook Live from there, but I wasn't sure about the internet connection and how that would how that would happen. But anyway, so we had a wonderful time. Actually, actually, won my age group. It wasn't really a, a good time, but one thing I've learned as you're getting old in these races, it's it's better to if you can't outrun them, outlive them because eventually you can place and, and win your age group if you're one of the few people that are actually in your age group in that race. So we had a glorious time and I, I appreciate all the comments, people asking you know, what's gonna be on this Thursday and it's great to know that folks are anticipating that so we appreciate all that, but that's where we were, had a glorious time. Tonight I wanted to just cover a couple of things that keep coming up in questions over and over again and I really appreciate everyone who had submitted ideas for how we want to proceed from here with additional topics. And I promise you, every single one of you who submitted an idea, and they were all fantastic, I'm going to cover all of those, every single one of those, in the, oncoming, in the upcoming weeks and make sure that we cover all those topics. So at any point, if you have additional ideas, you really want to have an answer, you're really confused about a certain topic, or you just have a certain desire to know more about something as it relates to women's health, regardless of the category, whether it has to do with nutrition or, or problems specifically associated with women's health, regardless of the genre, feel free to let me know, either put it on the Facebook page itself or private message me, whatever, and we'll take care of that and make sure we get that answered. Because that's, after all, the whole purpose of what we're doing here is to cut through the myths, cut through the misperceptions. Gosh only knows that all you have to do is go on the internet and type in anything in Dr. Google and you get scared to death. I can't tell you every day I get somebody coming in the office saying, I had these symptoms, I put them in Dr. Google, and I was just convinced I was dead. I was dying, I was, I, it was not gonna last the next day. So I really discourage doing that. I always encourage people researching and learning and educating themselves, but you gotta be very critical consumer. You gotta be very smart about your sources because you can be really taken down a, a dangerous pathway oftentimes with the information that you can find on the, uh, inter the internet uh, information stupid highway, which is really confusing for a lot of folks. So the whole purpose of what we do here is to simply try to cut through the noise, try to give you something that's very practical, very uh, scientifically based, uh, with this concept of you know, wrapping it in this mind, body, and spirit. So in that vein, I wanted to cover a couple of areas tonight that I had a lot of questions about. And if you have a question, if there's something that's just burning in that you want answered, chances are there's a number of other folks who would like an answer. So type it in in the comments. I can see these comments now. Hey, Connie, Susan, uh, Anna, Shelley, Mary Helen, Kathleen, uh, any questions that anybody who's watching, just type those in and I'll try to address them. Uh, and we'll, we'll see what we can accomplish this evening. Well, first of all, I've got a lot of questions about a very, very common issue that people have all the time. And it's something that we just don't sit around and talk about very often, except in my office, and that's vaginal discharges. And so I wanted to just kind of give you a brief overview because it's something that virtually everybody at some stage, whether you're young, you're middle-aged, old, 
is going to experience and it's something that is so common and oftentimes very confusing. So I wanted to kind of give you at least a basic guideline of what to do if you start experiencing anything like that and where you take it. So the very first thing to understand about vaginal discharges is there's basically two types. There's two broad categories of discharges. Number one is what we call a physiological discharge. That's essentially a normal occurrence. Those are just the over-secretion of cervical or vaginal glands. So how does that characterize? Usually, basically, it's just the moisture. It's, it's maybe clear. It's not irritating. There's not an odor. There's no itching or burning. It's just you feel, people describe it as feeling wet. They notice stuff in their, in their undergarments. But it's just there. It's the discharge itself. That's just usually secondary to maybe hormone fluctuations. Sometimes you can see that with birth control pills. Interestingly, birth control pills can have an effect one way or the other. Sometimes people who actually have vaginal discharges physiologically will put them on birth control pills and it actually reduces it. But an almost equal number of people actually will start seeing that as a result of birth control pills. Sometimes changing birth control pills can actually make a difference, but that's a very common source of vaginal secretions. And we know that normal hormone fluctuations can do that. Sometimes hormone can, replacement can do that. There's a number of things, but the important distinction is it's not a medical issue. It's not a disease. It's not a problem. It's annoying, and sometimes there's not a whole lot we can do about it, and it's real frustrating for folks but it's not going to turn into anything bad. Now, the one exception is a very, very rare occurrence, and I even hesitate to bring it up, but it's a rare occurrence where there's a really profuse discharge, and it's usually clear, it's not irritating, and it can be a sign of a problem with the tubes, predominantly a type of cancer of the tubes. Uh, again, I don't even, I even hesitate to say that because the next time somebody has a, a real watery discharge. Oh, I've got cancer in the tube. No, I think in 30 years I've seen that once. But just for completeness sake, I wanted folks to understand. The other thing that sometimes confuses people is distinguishing between a little bit of urine loss and actual vaginal discharge. And sometimes that's confusing. Sometimes it's difficult to make that distinction. Sometimes it's difficult for us to make that distinction and we have to do some special testing to try to differentiate where the source of the moisture is. And again, there are other rare things such as someone who has had a surgery and may develop a connection. But say you've had a hysterectomy and there may have been a little area in the bladder that got damaged and there's a connection between the back of the vagina and the bladder and people will actually get urine coming out of the vaginal canal. That's very rare, but it does occur and it's something we can check and test for. But in general, for the vast majority, 99% of folks, that just this physiological discharge, it's like, you know, you think of somebody who is always clearing their throat, they always seem to be producing a lot of mucus. Well, the same thing to a degree may be happening vaginally. So the biggest thing that we can do when you come into the office for that is to differentiate that from the other type of vaginitis or vaginal discharge, which truly is an infectious discharge due to an infectious agent. So what typically characterizes that? A lot of times the discharge 
can be colored. It may be cottage cheesy, classic yeast type in, infection. It may have a blood tinge to it. It may be yellowish. It may be greenish, but it's typically not clear or milky. Uh, the second characteristic, it tends to sometimes have an odor. People will describe a fishy odor or they'll describe an odor that is not pleasant. Uh, that's not a great differentiator oftentimes because even sometimes taking certain vitamins or eating certain foods can affect odor. So odor by and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that there's an infectious process. In fact, I, I see a lot of folks who come in and say, you know, I have this really bad odor and I smell it so I know everybody else does. Well, you know what the reality is? Nobody else does. Even sometimes when I'm examining someone and they've complained of this terrible odor that they notice, I don't get any sense of that at all. Now, it's not to say it's not there. It's just important that that by itself doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong. And it can, but it has to be in the context of everything else. So you, you've got something that's usually an off color, an off odor. And importantly, most infectious type discharges are irritating, whether it's pain, whether it's raw chafing, whether it's itching, whether it's burning. Most infectious type discharges will create a symptom that's easily identifiable. Now, not all things that cause pain are discharges and not all discharges cause pain. So again, the overlying point in this entire discussion is if there's a question about it, don't self-treat. Just come on in and let us or have your doctor check you and be definitive about it. In the long run, it's going to save you time and money because if you go off to the pharmacy and just buy something over the counter, you really don't know what you're treating. You don't know if what you're spending the 30 or $40 on is going to be of any good at all. And you might end up then additionally having to buy something additional to treat really what the problem is. So my recommendation is always to be examined and have it checked because a lot of these things can mimic other things in each other. So itching, burning, discomfort, odor, color, those are the most common signs that maybe there's an infectious process. So what are the common causes of the infectious process? Well, most everyone's experienced the yeast infections. If you were to culture vaginal canals for yeast, almost everybody would probably turn positive to some degree because it's a very common component of the vaginal flora. It's only when it overgrows that it creates the classic yeast infection issues with the discharge and the itching and burning and irritation. And there are a number of things that can cause that to overgrow. Number one, and probably the most common, is the use of antibiotics. Antibiotics are great for treating a particular problem, but you've got to keep in mind that you're not just attacking that one area. For example, if you've got strep throat and you're taking a penicillin for that strep throat, it's gonna kill that strep throat, but it's also gonna affect the normal bacteria everywhere else in the body. That's why so many people, when they take antibiotics, have a lot of gut problems, have a lot of GI problems, whether it's diarrhea or other GI complaints, because the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut, are very important to your overall health, and in many cases are 
working with your your nutrition to really keep things in balance. So if you take an antibiotic, it's going to actually kill off a lot of those bacteria too. Now the good news is most people repopulate those bacteria in a pretty short period of time, especially if you take prebiotics or, or probiotics either before or after the antibiotic use to help repopulate that bacteria. So just know when you take antibiotics, it's not targeted right to that area. Obviously you gotta take them to cure the problem, but that's also why we're very hesitant to, to use antibiotics unless we absolutely know that there's a problem. It's very frustrating sometimes on our end when somebody comes in and says, I think I have this infection, an upper respiratory infection. It's obvious it's probably viral, but they've been programmed that they have to have an antibiotic to get better. And as most of you know, antibiotics won't do anything for viral illnesses. If you have the flu, you could take every antibiotic that's ever been made. It's not gonna do a dead burn thing. So the misuse of antibiotics oftentimes leads to a whole gamut of other product problems. They're not just passive riders in your system. They create a lot of issues. And one of those issues is yeast infections. In fact, there are many women out there who absolutely demand that if they're going to be on antibiotic that they have to follow that with some type of treatment for yeast because inevitably that yeast overgrows because the normal bacteria that keep everything in balance and check in the vaginal canal uh, get blown away and then the yeast overgrows and start having a party and the rest is history. So yeast is a very common cause of the vaginal infections. There's a very common uh, collection of organisms that we commonly lump into what we call bacterial vaginosis or BV and that's a number of different types of bacteria that can overgrow and again that's just an imbalance it's not an STD it's not a uh, something that's passed back and forth it's just an imbalance of the normal bacteria everything works in 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 conjunction with each other and maintaining that balance is is what health is all about in many ways and when that balance is busted up and you get an, a preponderance of bacteria that can cause discharge. You get this odor, the fishy odor, irritation, discomfort. Uh, and there's multiple other organ organisms that can cause discharges. For example, trichomonas is a common one that can cause a real heavy discharge and horrible, horrible itching. I mean, I've had people coming in with, with skin abrasions where they've been itching so hard from the trichomonas because it can be really miserable. And then of course there's the STDs that people are familiar with, the gonorrhea, the chlamydia, all those can cause discharges also. Uh, interestingly enough, the most common STD today, HPV, human papillomavirus, doesn't cause any kind of discharge. You don't see anything like that with HPV. So that's one of the differentiating factors. HPV, as many of you know, is related to abnormal pap smears in, sometimes condylomas or genital warts, but they don't cause discharge and virtually don't have any other symptoms other than possibly if you get one of those warts. So that's kind of the two umbrella categories for vaginal infections or vaginal, or vaginal discharges rather. There's one in particular that's, that's really kind of in a special category by itself and that's called atrophic vaginitis. You know, if, I, if I'd have had a son, I'd have loved to name him Atrophic. I mean, wouldn't it be a great name like Atrophic Magna Seeker 
I mean, like, he was destined to become like a hammer thrower or something. I mean, that'd be a great name. Hey, hey, trophy, come on over here. Anyway, what, what that means is that is specific to women who are in the perimenopause, menopause, or young women who have their ovaries taken out either through surgery or through chemotherapy or through uh, radiation where they're not producing estrogen. So even young women can experience this atrophic vaginitis. And, but it's most common in perimenopausal and especially postmenopausal women. And that's simply where the vaginal lining, the vaginal cells that are normally 10 or 12 cell layers thick, because they're not getting the stimulation from the estrogen, estrogen is going bye-bye. Ovaries put up for retirement, no longer working, put in there 40 years, I'm out of here, leave me alone. So those vaginal layers thin down to maybe three or four cell layers thick. And when that happens, you lose collagen, you lose elastin, and you lose moisture, and you lose fun with sex, and it, all kind of things can happen with that. So the atrophic vaginitis, it's kind of one of those things that's misnamed in a way because it's not, when you think of anything with itis on the end of it, you think infection. So it's not really an infection. It, it's simply a physiological change due to menopause. And about 75 to 80% of people experience it to some degree. Now, unlike hot flashes, which tend to come and go, they tend to go away after a few years. For most folks, unless you're one of the lucky 95-year-old who's still flashing like crazy. Uh, well, that I mean, I guess I'd have clarified that. I mean, if you're I'm not talking about the raincoat flashing, I'm talking about the hot flashes. But if you're most people, the hot flashes and the other symptoms of menopause will go away. However, the vaginal atrophy or atrophic vaginitis tends to be cumulative. It tends to, for a lot of people, get worse over time. So it's not something that, oh, I'm having this problem now, but it's going to get better on its own. Well, probably not. Probably not going to get better on its own. And the biggest issue with that is pain with intercourse. I mean, that is a very, very common issue associated with this problem. In fact, it's probably the most common problem associated with this issue. You can get a whole spectrum of things called genitourinary atrophy or genitourinary syndrome that even can involve things like urinary incontinence and sometimes discharge. Maybe that's where they got the vaginitis from because even you can get a discharge from this uh, you know, if a, if a postmenopausal woman comes in and there's no evidence of infection, then almost always the discharge is secondary to the thinness of those tissues. Uh, let me take just a second and tell you what you can do about that because we're all about solutions here. It's not just about problems. Probably the, there, there are two, two major options for addressing that. Three, if you will. You can use some of the over-the-counter products. There's a difference between a lubricant and a moisturizer. A moisturizer is something that you can use on a daily basis like Lubrin or Replens, little suppositories you place in. They kind of work with your own system. They don't contain any hormones. And for some people who have mild issues, yeah, it works okay. They do, they do fine and it, and it helps. And it's all about the symptoms. That's what drives everything. So using some over-the-counter product like that can be beneficial. Lubricants are actually things like KY or Astroglide. Uh, I, who came up with that name? Astroglide. I wonder if that started out as being like a lubricant for a rocket or something. I just, Astroglide. I never understood where that came from. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a good lubricant. And usually those are used just for 
intercoursing just for helping with those. They're not to be used on a daily basis unless you're really into some weird stuff, but we're not going to get into. But they can, that, that's one option for treating that problem. The second gets into the hormone issue. And certainly using hormones can be very beneficial for that problem. I have found in 30 years of practice that using the topical hormones actually has a pretty beneficial effect even over and above someone who's taken oral hormones or shots or pellets. A lot of those folks still have vaginal issues because for whatever reason they don't get enough to those tissues. So you can be on hormones orally, estrogen, progesterone, whatever, and still have some of that vaginal dryness, that atrophic vaginitis. So a lot of times will either address that individually with topical estrogen. There's estrogen creams, there's estrogen suppositories, there's estrogen inserts, little tablets, there's an estrogen ring, a little celastic ring, and it's absorbed. Now, an important distinction between that and taking something orally is very little of the estrogen actually gets absorbed into your system. So you can use those products to help with that particular symptom and not be overly concerned about any of the systemic side effects of estrogen that everyone's always concerned about. Breast cancer, blood clots, you know, those kind of issues. You don't really see that with the vaginal products. They've actually measured the blood levels of people using the vaginal products and you see just a very minimal elevation, if at all. So they're usually quite safe. In fact, I have a number of patients in the practice who have had breast cancer that have had terrible, terrible, horrible problems with vaginal atrophy because they had breast cancer early on and so they were, they were taking off estrogen or they had the ovaries taken out. They were quite young at the time, so they developed horrible problems with that. And it really became a huge issue with, with them uh, in their relationships. So I've talked with various oncologists and have actually, we now have several large studies that say that you can in select individuals use estrogen for that particular purpose. Again, you have to check with your doctor and check with your oncologist if that's a situation you find yourself in because everybody's different. So don't take this as a blanket recommendation, but just know that that is for some people an option. So using estrogen in that sense. Now the big disadvantage that many people who are doing that and seeing that and know that, uh, know that it's messy. I mean, it's, it's a cream and you know, you just, it's just, it's just messy. I mean, there's no other way around it. It can be just kind of annoying to use. I generally tell people to put it in at night so maybe it'll absorb and, you know, of course they get up in the middle of the night and all this stuff clops out. So, I mean, it's, it's not ideal. Sometimes the little tablets or the vaginal suppositories are a little bit better. They're a little better absorbed. But the problem there is then they don't get to the outside like the cream. And anyone who's suffering from this issue knows that it's not just an inside issue, it's an outside issue in the labia and the vulva. Those are sensitive tissues to estrogen also. And a lot of times the, the vaginal opening can get very narrow, very inelastic, and that's where the real problem is. So if you're putting a vaginal suppository inside the vaginal canal, you're not getting any on those external. So it, it does complicate things a little bit good one-size-fits-all when it comes to estrogen like that, uh, tolerating the side effects. and Like anything else, you're just weighing the pros and the cons, and you're weighing what's going to work best for you and what you can tolerate and what you don't want to tolerate. Uh, does everybody need to get any treatment for that all? Of course not. It's based on symptoms. Is this going to turn into anything if you do nothing? Uh, well, no, uh, other than possibly you can see some urinary issues associated, like some types of incontinence can be 
maybe made worse. There's some thought that you may have some weakness of the tissues and you might get more prolapse. You've heard the term cystocele, rectocele. There, there's a plenty of people who have vaginal atrophy who don't have those issues either, so it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. But my point is, do you have to do anything if it's not really bothering you? And the, and the answer is no. Uh, you just really want to do something if you need uh, treatment. The other option is that many people are, are now becoming aware of is this Mona Lisa laser touch. Uh, Mona Lisa touch laser. Mona Lisa laser touch. Mona Lisa Touch Laser, which is a wonderful new tool that is an effective treatment for this same issue, this vaginal atrophy, atrophic vaginitis. And people are asking, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're using the term laser and vagina in the same sentence. That's not exactly what I was thinking I was going to hear. That's not something that sounds like a walk in the park to me. Well, the reality is it's a very simple five-minute pain-free in-office procedure that has been a lifesaver for folks who either don't want to use estrogen, can't use estrogen, realize the estrogen is quite expensive. If anybody's bought any of the creams lately, they, they can be quite expensive. So it's allowed us to offer people an option. The biggest advantage of this laser and, and what it does, just so, just so you know a little bit of the physiology because you're, you're smart folks and I know you guys want to know what in the heck is a laser going to do. Years ago, they discovered when they were doing laser work on the skin to get rid of wrinkles, the big problem was collagen and elastin. That's in the subdermal layer, the layer right under the skin. That's what caused wrinkles. That's what makes all of us look a lot older than we really are because we are really way younger in our heads than we are physically. But it's the wrinkles that people want to get rid of and we've known for years that lasers have been effective treatment for doing that. Well then some bright person, I wish it was me, but some somebody a lot smarter than me a number of years ago said well that's the same issue that's happened vaginally. You're losing the elastin, you're losing the collagen and I wonder if it would work there because the wavelengths of the laser are different and the way it's pulsed and the way it's delivered, I don't want to go into a lot of the physics because it, it's all confusing, but needless to say, they couldn't just take a facial laser and put it in the vagina. They had to make a lot of adjustments and do a lot of work on figuring out what was safe, what was effective, but the bottom line is they have, and since 2012 in the U.S., this has been available. We've been doing it in our practice probably two and a half, maybe three years. I've probably done over 300 folks in the last several years. And it really is an effective tool. It's a five minute procedure in the office. You do three treatments over six weeks. And for 90% of people, that's all they need. 10% of folks will need some additional treatments to get the resolution and get where they need to be. But that's one of the big advantages over the creams, which you pretty much have to do ongoing, continually. So it, it's really given folks another option, given a, another choice when they don't want to deal with it. If, if you're interested, I, I forgot, we are actually having an open house February 6th in our office. That's Thursday, I think two weeks from now, February 6th, Thursday at 6.30 in our office. It's free, it's open, it's basically just an information session where we're going to show you a lot more information about this particular laser, about the treatment, talk about who it's for, who it's not for, and really answer any individual questions that you might have as it applies to you. 
We've got some great refreshments. That's my favorite part. Healthy refreshments. Sorry. Uh, and uh, but you do you need to sign up because we have a very limited space. We're gonna we do it right in our waiting room in our office, so we have a limited number of sites. So you need to sign up if you're interested. I'll put the I'll put the link on here after uh, after we finish today. And uh, if you're interested, just come. Uh, I think I'm gonna give uh, yeah everybody who shows up gets a free copy of Holy Hormones. I mean, come on. How can you beat that? A very own free copy that you can take and line the birdcage with if you still have birds. But you get a free copy of my book, Holy Hormones, if you show up. That's just an appreciation for people taking the time to come and do that. And also, if you decide you want to have the procedure, we're going to give pretty significant discounts at night. And I think we're actually going to do a drawing for a free uh, a free uh, treatment. So just, just because we appreciate people taking the time to come and listen and hear about it. So anyway, I'll put the link to sign up if you're interested in that. Okay, let me look up here and see. Hey, Andrea, Kim, uh, Indy, Judy, Holly. Let's see, Holly says, when starting supplemental hormones, in this case, estrotes, what is the general time frame before noticing any changes? Uh, Great question. For most people, if you're looking to treat, for example, hot flashes, you're going to see some improvement sometimes in five to seven days. Now, for other issues like sleep, if you're taking it to try to help with sleep and you have a sleep issue, that may take a little bit longer. The same thing for this atrophic vaginitis. That may take uh, a good four to six weeks before you start seeing a difference for that particular symptom. So the time frame towards resolution of the symptoms really is dependent on the symptom. It varies from person to person. But generally, things like the hot flash, now things like skin changes, people talk about dry skin, um, that's going to take longer too. Some of the mental changes like foggy thinking, that may be actually a little quicker. That may be a little bit closer to the uh, issue like the hot flashes. But for uh, things like sleep, that may be a little bit longer in general. Uh, Hey, Jane. Uh, Catherine... Hey, Wilma, Susan, Tamara, uh, any other questions? That's kind of what I wanted to cover tonight. I didn't want you to think like you were drinking out of a fire hose and throw too much at you. Uh, just remember that uh, we've got the Mona Lisa Laser Open House coming up. Oh, we do have one spot left in the program that we're doing, the really intensive uh, program on weight loss energy, libido, menopause, hormones. We've got one spot left. Uh, If you're interested in that, look at the previous video that we did. It'll send you to the site to give you a little more information on that. Uh, But just let you know, we've only got one spot left in that. And if you want to come to the open house, be sure you register because we have to, we're going to have to cut that off here pretty soon because we've already got a large number of folks that are, that are coming in for that. let me leave you with this. We, we were at the, at the marathon this past weekend and they traditionally have a pasta dinner on the night prior to the marathon just to get those carbs loaded. <laughs> Carb loading is so funny. I, I, I don't know if any of you are fans of The Office. It's one of my all-time favorite television shows. My favorite episode is where Mike, the main character, is getting ready to run a 10K. So he said, I'm going to carb load. So 
He's sitting there literally at the start of the race with this big plate of pasta, stuffing it in, talking about carb loading right there as the gun goes off. And probably within a mile, he's over in the side of the curb throwing up his guts. So that's not, a, that's not what I mean when I'm talking about carb loading. This is the night before the dinner where you go. And this was really a nice, uh, a nice hotel, and they really did it well. This was helped sponsor. I didn't realize that the world headquarters of Bacardi Rum is in Bermuda. In fact, the world headquarters was directly across from the hotel. So they were one of the sponsors, so it was done well. But the keynote speaker was uh, a lady named Susie Favor Hamilton. Some of you may remember that name from the news about two or three years ago fascinating story. In fact, I'll put a link to her book and her story after after the video here tonight. So if you're interested, she was a world-class athlete runner. She was in three consecutive Olympics. And if any of you know, competing at that level for that length of time in that type of sport is just phenomenal. You just don't see that very often. And I think she was a 1500 meter miler, maybe a maybe did uh, uh, the 440, I'm not sure, but she was a, an amazing athlete. A few years after she finished her Olympic career, she ended up being, wait for it, a Las Vegas prostitute. Bet you weren't looking for that to come. Fascinating story. Just a quick summary is she had manic depression and it went undiagnosed and then actually when it was initially diagnosed after her baby, she had a baby and had postpartum issues, she was placed on a medication that actually exacerbated the manic depression and she developed this hypersexuality which is very common in manic depression illness and she just, she was living in I think Wisconsin and she just took off, left her family for the weekend, went out to Las Vegas, got involved in the escort industry, and literally would go back and forth from her home to weekends out there and became one of the top escorts in Las Vegas. Long story short, got outed. Someone recognized her. You know, she had been on the cover of Sports Illustrated when she was in her heyday anyway got outed got treated appropriately but then the amazing part of this is had the courage to then begin talking about it because she had a family history she had a brother who had manic depression and was diagnosed in his mid-30s and committed suicide her father suffered from it but the gist of her talk was really one of redemption one of never giving up hope of not only for yourself, but in recognizing that in others, whether they're family members who are involved with all kinds of things that you would naturally think are just devastating or horrendous, but are a result of this chemical imbalance, this medical issue, this change in brain chemistry that manifests in many of these behaviors that we would normally otherwise just just right off as being you know someone is just completely become someone we don't know so her speaking out about this writing this book really has touched a lot of lives and it really has started us thinking about mental illness and beginning to rethink why it's important that we redirect a lot of our efforts toward mental illness 
there is not a single health issue in this country today that is more neglected than mental illness. Back in the 60s, when we closed a lot of the institutions, I think we did a masterfully terrible service to most people who have severe mental illness because it basically turned them out on the street. Yes, don't, I don't want to get the emails. I know there was some horrendous stuff done in these places. There was some really bad treatment, some really bad things done. But for a lot of individuals, it was their only source of treatment. There's a lot, probably 80 to 85% of homeless people now have a diagnosed mental illness because they don't have anywhere to get treatment. They don't have anywhere to go. Even me in my office, trying to get someone into a psychiatrist now is almost impossible because they're overbooked, they're overworked, there's not enough of them. Our healthcare system is not structured to take care of folks with manic depression, schizophrenia, uh, chronic depression, uh, anxiety disorders. These are going untreated and undiagnosed. And people like Susie Faber Hamilton, who could have easily just crawled away and disappeared and left and not exposed herself to any more scrutiny, has come out and said, this is a medical problem. This is an illness. Don't abandon these people. Embrace them. When they get treatment, they can function as wonderful, contributing humans in the population. Get rid of the stigma. Bring them out from under the, the homelessness, from under the, 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 the abuse from uh, all, all corners and, and not be judgmental. So if you're interested in her story, I'll post a link to her book, but I just mentioned that as it was incredibly inspiring to me. Uh, we saw her, uh, I, got, I got a picture with her, I'll post that too, got a picture with her after the, uh, after the marathon, she ran the half and is still out there and doing a remarkable job. Someone, a perfect example, who's taken probably the worst nightmare of, of, that you could imagine in your life, turned it around to now being an advocate for folks so that they don't have to go through what she did. So it was a message of hope. So I'm hoping that Everything we do on this is also a message of hope. So thanks for being with us tonight. I hope this has given you some good information. And until next time, you know, say it with me, make healthy choices. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, Join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eaker at reaker at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy.